You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Democracy, it's about how democracy can break your heart, but you still believe in it. Hi, you're listening to The Shows We Need from The Ensemblist. I'm Michael Fatica. I was taught in the land of the free. I was taught where they screamed at me life. Life. Liberty. Liberty. How can I turn my back on democracy? Welcome back to The Shows We Need, where we talk about shows that are being made or have been made and are important for people to see when the theater industry can reopen someday, hopefully soon. This week, I talked to one of my most favorite people and former Groundhog Day cast member, Raymond J. Lee, about a little Grammy-nominated show he did off-Broadway called Soft Power. I didn't know the show well, but when it was recommended to me, I took a deep dive in, and I have to say, I was blown away by how cleverly it deals with super touchy topics about race, democracy, traditional theater, lots of stuff. I couldn't wait to talk to Ray about this show. Here's our conversation. Hi, can you please tell me your name, your preferred pronouns, and where you're calling from? Hi, my name is Raymond J. Lee. Um, I go by he, him, his, and I'm calling from Saugerties, New York, upstate. How have you been holding up since March? You know, um, we came up here pretty fast. I've um, had the virus, unfortunately, in April um, and May. We dealt with that um, in addition to remote schooling for my daughter, um, who finished the second half of kindergarten remotely, which... No kindergartner should have to do kindergarten remotely. But, um, you know, we made it work and um, just have kind of adjusted to life up here, you know, in nature, cooking meals together and actually having a lot of quality family time together. I am glad you're feeling better and spending time with family. And drinking lots and lots of drinking. (laughs) I'm attempting dry January and it has been a struggle. Okay, let's talk about soft power. Can you tell me what it's about? You know, the show, it's so hard to describe because it has so many different themes and tackles so many topics, but I basically call it a giant fever dream that deals with the politics of America and U.S. relations with China. It also deals with the Asian American struggle in this country and being a quote unquote other compared to white Americans. And it's a play that turns into a musical. It's like the most crazy version of The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) I read a lot of taglines that claim it's a reversal of The King and I. Can you explain that reference a bit? Totally. I mean, that was the inspiration for David Henry Huang to write the show. He was, I think, watching the revival of The King and I and saw how problematic the material was compared to modern times. And back when he started writing it, he thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. So the premise was going to be Hillary becomes president and then this Chinese guy comes and helps her solve the issue of gun control and this and that and minorities. And that's how it was going to be a direct reversal of The King and I. And then stuff happened. (laughs) A very similar plot structure to The King and I. But aren't there other ways that this musical used references from the show? I read that David Henry Huang was strongly influenced by how whitewashed The King and I had been done. Are there other devices like this that parallel that? 
What David and Janine and the whole team wanted to do was because, you know, in the original King and I movie, a lot of white people are dressed up as Asian people. And mm-hmm. being an Asian American actor, I dealt with that. Even as a young kid, there are a lot of non-Asians playing Asian. So when it becomes this fever dream of this in the show, basically, the lead character gets stabbed, and then it turns into a musical. He goes into this Chinese version of America, and the Americans are all played by Asian people. And we all have blonde wigs. We all have different accents, you know, because just to parallel how when white creators create Asian shows, they don't even care about the accent. Everyone's using a different Asian accent, but to the white ear, it all sounds Asian, quote unquote Asian. So he was trying to make a point about that. It was very, very smart and very therapeutic as an Asian American actor. The details are like little Easter eggs of rebellion throughout. It's really interesting. And you're right. Generalizing cultures on Broadway is a rampant problem for sure. I think there's a point that David thought that uh, white creators exoticized Asian themes and customs so much. Like in, in The King and I, like I think it was a, 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 or a flower drum song or other shows like that. It was a amalgamation of different customs and traditions all put into one general umbrella Asian theme. So he wanted to do that with soft power where this Chinese version of America, everyone has guns. McDonald's is the fanciest restaurant. Like he really wanted to parallel what people had done to the Asian culture in musicals. The song where we meet the character of Hillary Clinton takes place at her campaign rally being held at McDonald's, the fanciest restaurant. (laughs) Can you tell me a bit about that number? I'm with her and how the writers captured this flipbook version of America? First of all, they had me in a roller roller skating and booty shorts. Ow, ow! Thank you, Anita Yavich and the whole <laughs> team for putting me in there. So the point of the song is that Hillary Clinton is campaigning to be president. And so she goes to different restaurants to, to drum up the vote. And so she arrives at the most famous American restaurant of all, McDonald's and talks to the people and while campaigning and talking about real issues, everyone starts getting bored. So then she starts twerking, tapping, booty dancing, modern dancing, voguing to try and get the people to pay attention to her, which I thought was a very smart way to kind of symbolize what Hillary had to do in real life. She had to kind of do things that I feel like mentally she was way smarter (laughs) to do. In the scene itself, we just talked about, I guess, the attention span of your average American, how you need the flashy, you need the loud, you need the show to, to maintain the attention versus actually listening to the specific topics that are being discussed. And that was a really cool, interesting point. Also, the characters and the people in the scene were kind of rabid. They wanted the drama. They wanted the, the violence. They wanted the action, which was also an, uh, another very interesting point, aka stereotype of the Americans in this Chinese version of America. Do you think the last year or so has given you some unique perspective on the themes in that number? I have to say there was one part, and this is another scene in the show, where is the end of act one where our lead character gets stabbed. And we all show up with our blonde wigs and our American shirts and torches and tiki, tiki torches and weapons. The curtain reveals all of us, this giant, angry American mob. I remember feeling so icky about it because we'd seen um, those groups, you know, the white guys in the South, you know, with the tiki torches. Then to know what just happened recently at the Capitol was terrifying because for me, having seen that image or on stage been that mob and then seeing this real mob enter the Capitol and promote violence and try to, you know, wreak havoc on the government was so scary and chilling. It was almost like I didn't realize we predicted (laughs) parts of the American future that was happening when we did the show. Truly (laughs) is terrifying. Terrifying. 
can you talk to me about your big number? Uh, who do you play and what subject matter does it deal with? So I played the vice president of the United States, the Veep. And basically I got to have a fun act two song called Good Guy with a Gun, where the vice president is repping Dear Leader. We never say the president's name, we say Dear Leader. And talking about how we need guns because we need to protect the country and it's better to have to, for everyone to have a gun that's the way for it to happen and so i had this giant number and we all danced with rifles ak-47s in the beginning actually it was american like revolutionary muskets but in la they changed it to ak-47s and then that made it so much realer and scarier especially with all the school shootings and the violence yeah that was a hard show that that night it was an interesting number because it was a number that people were uncomfortable with. Because in the middle of the number, I fully say, no American would throw away his gun. And I would stop the number and look at everybody in the audience. And to see how uncomfortable people were was not only terrifying, but really interesting and fascinating and important. Isn't it a sign of great theater when the audience is forced to look at themselves in the mirror and really see themselves in that story? But we would actually have people walk out, both in L.A. and New York, and they would walk out in the way of making a statement. It wasn't like, I don't like this part. Let's quickly like, no, they were like, stomp, 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 slam a door to let them know they didn't agree with the satire that was happening on stage. But it's important. How poignant to only refer to Trump as dear leader. What a clear cult reference. They had played with how he was going to be revealed. They were wondering in earlier drafts, he was going to be a giant puppet. He was maybe going to have a chicken head. He was maybe going to have an orange head. Um, in L.A., there was Budweiser Towers in the White House. So they played with how to present him. And in the end, they thought it was more powerful not to have him in the show, but to have his second in command. I want to mention the song, It Just Takes Time. I love that it is a sweet moment of man meets woman, but it's also a moment about an Asian man teaching a white woman how to say his name correctly. The first tone is flat high-pitched and floating how lovely not to talk about voting. how did a song with this kind of microaggression at the root of it resonate with you and with the cast first of all so a bunch of us in the cast didn't speak chinese and austin ku was our our chinese dialect teacher because in the beginning of act two i had this speech and i had some you know phrases to say so i felt hillary clinton's pain in that number because austin would be like no it's ron shuli and i'm like Ran Shirley, and he's like, Ray. And so I, it was interesting to be in the white character's point of view because I totally got it. That number was fun because it was this mix of like uh, My Fair Lady meets like Shall We Dance? Because, you know, they do a giant dance around the stage. And I like that this Asian character was teaching a white character how to be correct, you know, in that society. It wasn't the other way around. Because a lot of the time you see the other way around. You see the white character telling the minority character, this is how to be proper. This is how you do it. I used to watch that number all the time because I just thought it was a smart hybrid of old school music theater with modern twist to it. How did it feel as someone who is not Chinese to be doing this accent in a show? So many Asian-centric shows, as you said earlier, don't really differentiate between the different cultures. You know, they did. They, they emphasized mainly the Asian-American experience in the country, because even though it's specifically Chinese, a lot of the feelings and emotions behind certain moments in the show, and, and especially the main characters, came from the Asian-American eye here in the United States. Like, for example, David Henry Huang was actually stabbed in Brooklyn because someone thought he was a food carrier. So I appreciate David really taking the umbrella of Asian-America and putting it into the show. Um, we actually had a lot of people also ask, too, the question at Talkbacks, like, how do you feel about playing a Chinese character being Korean? 
And I said, you know, right now, I felt like we're not allowed to be that specific yet. We still have to pioneer as Asian Americans to get better representation. And for me, if like an English person can play a French person, can a French person play a German person? Can Chinese play Korean? Can Korean play Japanese? I would never play Indian, you know, South Asian. Like there's, it's, we're still figuring out the borders and the boundaries for the correct representation, you know? And so that was an interesting comment. We got that a bunch of Q and A's. How important do you think it is to have a show like this with a ton of Asian representation that isn't just set in an Asian country or, or location? It is so important to have shows like Soft Power, so important. Representation alone, it's, we had a lot of comments from especially younger Asian kids at the stage door where this was like their first time seeing an Asian romantic lead. They were like, oh my gosh, in a way like, because Conrad played this character so sexy, you could believe he, this woman would fall in love with him. A lot of the times we play the sidekicks, we play the asexual characters or, you know, we're relegated to the character roles. And so a lot of kids were like, it was so great to see a romantic lead that was Asian that didn't have an accent. He was just American. The last number of the show is all of us, just who we are, singing the reprise of democracy. So when there's a sea of Asian faces singing about America and democracy. And that number, you would feel it in the audience, just representation-wise, who just related to it, who wanted to see this group of Asian people on a stage singing about America, because that's been so rare. I don't really remember another time that I've had that moment. So very, very important. And also to give these kids material, the future generations material to audition with, practice with, it really has been cool to be a part of this show and just for the next generation. To piggyback on that, I'd love to talk about the number I am, which is about a man figuring out how to fuse his Asian heritage with his American present. Did the cast or creative team ever talk about having to deal with this personally or dealing with it as artists? That song is so important and so meaningful. It was amazing to see the different responses people had to it. A lot of biracial kids related to that song because they're part of two worlds. And they sometimes feel like they get pulled in one direction or the other. I related to it being Korean American because when I lived in America, I felt like I wasn't American enough. And then when I lived in Korea, when I was in elementary school, I wasn't Korean enough. And I was like, I am, where am I? Who am I? Who am I? Um, <laughs> I am both. <laughs> I had the, um, the privilege of covering Francis. So I got to sing that song like at an understudy rehearsal and practice it and really study it. And it's just, it's such a smart song. It's such a meaningful song. If you are a minority in this country or biracial, like there's just an added level of understanding that you get with that song that just kind of clicks with you. The cool thing about the rehearsal process is that Lee Silverman would have circle ups where we would just all circle around before a rehearsal and we would just vomit our feelings <laughs> about the business, about being Asian American, about being the kids of immigrants. And it was fascinating and so meaningful that people listened. Janine told us, I think uh, during one of our circle ups that um, she was like, I was not aware the plight of the Asian American actor in this business and what you guys have to deal with. And she said, my eyes have been opened with the show. And we were all like, oh, that is huge. That's, it made it feel like this was worth it to be able to open up such a influential eye like Janine Tesori. And, it was, and we did it by just being honest. We told about the stories we had about having to have accents in rehearsal rooms or getting comments about eye surgery or be more Asian, be more American, um, being a token in a rehearsal room. 
And I think it was good to talk about that and bring that up to the light. Because if you don't experience it, I don't know if you're aware of it. Well, if that's not a beautiful example of what inclusivity in the rehearsal room can do, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay, final question. Asian Americans have received a whole new hit of racism this year with the former reality TV show host Donald Trump's rhetoric about, quote, the China virus or coronavirus. If there is life for soft power, fingers crossed, what do you think could be added or changed about the show based on the events of this past year? We were joking. I was talking to um, some cast members how we could write part two with all the stuff that has happened, including, and I think there should be a Kung Flu ballet. <laughs> like full on old school, like, you know, singing the rain, give us one of these big uh, dream ballet numbers. I think there's so much more material. When we had done the show, like the kids, kids in cages was just a topic. I made a point. What if we had kids in cages in the White House? Like there's so much more material now that I feel like David has, unfortunately, that David can use in the next reiteration of the show. And even the fact that we have a new president, which I personally am relieved for, could be also a way to end the show and make it even more hopeful. Because when we ended the show last time, Trump was still president and we just didn't know what was going to happen. We knew this election was going to come, but we didn't know which way it was going to go. So I personally am also very curious to see what the next chapter of soft power will be and what will be included. Well, I certainly hope that there is a next chapter for soft power and that it is on the Broadway stage because it is a show we need. I have to say, I made a joke too. I was like, instead of the Veep, I will gladly wear a blonde wig and come out as Kellyanne Conway. Ooh, you'd be beautiful. I looked up what soft power means, and it's defined as a country having cultural or intellectual influence. Ha. Do yourself a favor and have a listen to this cast album, read some interviews with David Henry Huang, or even just check out some clips online. This is my personal favorite kind of theater, the kind that makes big statements with both big choices and also subtle hidden ones. Let's hope we get to see soft power on the stage again soon. Bye for now. Special thanks to Raymond J. Lee for sharing his stories with us. The Ensemblist was produced today by me, Michael Fatica, Jackson Klein, and Mo Brady. There are two great ways you can help The Ensemblist right now. One is by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The other is by becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash The Ensemblist. Please follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at bpn.fm, the home of the Broadway Podcast Network. You can also follow us on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.